Luke chapter 18, 31 through 43. It says, Jesus took the 12 aside, not through 43, through 34. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. This is the third and final time that Jesus, in the book of Luke, has predicted his death. The first two times were back in chapter 9, beginning in verse 21, and then again beginning in, in verse, uh, verse 44. So those two times. And it was at this time here in, uh, in uh, it was at that time when Jesus predicted his death the first two times that it said that Jesus was resolutely, he set out for Jerusalem. His face was like flint. He was set out towards the cross. That's what Luke 9.51 says. He resolutely set out for Jerusalem. It's important to know that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't plan B. Um, quite often our deaths are plan B to us. Anybody else? Um, not many of us really choose when and how and where and all that type of stuff, apart from those probably in war in a split-second decision. Um, but the choice that Jesus had, he knew when and where and how he was going to die. Could you imagine knowing that about yourself? Would you willfully walk down that path to get to that if that was God's plan for you? Jesus wasn't trying to set up a kingdom without the cross. He wasn't uh, avoiding the cross, uh, trying to come to the Jews and say, hey, let me be your king apart from the cross. It was always God's plan for the cross. Jesus wasn't a victim of circumstances. Yes, he was attacked by men, but under the providential hand of God. It was God's plan all along. Jesus was anticipating the cross. Not the suffering, he wanted it to pass from him, but he is anticipating fulfilling God's will. He hungered and thirsted to do God's will even more than life itself. That's what it is to be a, a Christian, to love God and his will more than your own life. Jesus was anticipating the cross because it had always been God's plan, even before the creation of the world. When I first came across that, that just blew my mind. I said, that couldn't be. It's got to be plan B. God in his foreknowledge knew all that would happen, and I think it's even his plan. But 1 Peter chapter 1, 18-20, when the pastor says that's what happened, you've got to back it up with Scripture, right? <laughs> you got to make sure that we always go, no, what's, what's the meat behind that? First Peter 1, 18-20, Peter, speaking of the sacrifice of the cross, obviously after the resurrection, he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life headed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen when? Before the creation of the world. 
but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Peter's saying that it was God's plan all along for Christ to die and redeem mankind. Jesus was chosen before time began. He was the chosen one, the Messiah, before the creation of the world. Does that just blow your mind? How many of you are going, well, I've got a lot of questions then. Join the group. The more I learn about God, the more questions I have. Any of us who have been exhausted with questions of God and think we understand everything have, boy, we've gotten into a religious system because that relationship is, that's a, that's a, a mind that we could never exhaust. But it was Jesus who was chosen before time began. He was chosen, the Messiah, before the creation of the world. Revelation 13, 8 calls Christ the Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world, before the creations of the world. What in the world is that? The Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. In the mind of the Father, Jesus was slain. It was His plan. So, it was always God's plan before the world was ever created that Jesus would come and die and redeem us for our sins. And of course, there's a lot of questions that, that come with that. And I would encourage you to, to find those answers and that they are in Scripture and mine them out and dig them out and ask the Father, so what does that mean? Why did you create the world? Where did evil come from? What purpose does it have? What's the purpose of suffering? All these types of things are found in Scripture, in Christ. And Jesus here in verse 31 says, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. In addition to it always being God's plan for out, from out all eternity, God revealed his plan to Israel through the prophets. Otherwise, we are totally in the dark about what God, unless God wants to let us know what's going on, we do not know what's going on. So many of these questions we wonder about, he, we're in the dark about. That doesn't mean he doesn't have the answers. There's a lot of things that we will not understand on this side of eternity, nor can we understand. So Jesus, obviously knowing the Old Testament, the mystery of his will, the redemption of mankind through the Messiah was prophesied over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ came about in great detail. So Jesus obviously knows his Bible. He was, he was amazing. The, the teachers at age 12 or whatever it was in, in, in the temple courts Remember when he stayed in Jerusalem and his parents decided to leave him? He was found at the feet of the teachers and they were amazed at his understanding. So Jesus knows what the prophecies they, they meant as he read his Bible. He knew that the Messiah must suffer according to God's will, which was made known through the prophets. And so Jesus describes for us in detail, six aspects of how the Son of Man is going to suffer in Jerusalem. Six things and ways he's going to suffer in Jerusalem. By the way, the term Son of, a man, Son of Man, if you notice that, is another name for the Messiah. It's taken from Daniel seven thirteen through 14 Quite often Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. 
because both Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man at the same time. But let me read it quickly for you, Daniel 7, 13-14. Daniel's having a vision. He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man. We see that again in, uh, in uh, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the burning, uh, you know, in the fiery furnace. When there was a fourth man, someone like the Son of Man was in there with them. But he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is the one that will never be destroyed. That's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man. So the Son of Man is referring to the Messiah who was given all authority and power and would be worshipped forever and ever, and yet Jesus says that the Son of Man must what? Must suffer. Must suffer. Someone with that kind of glory and that power to be subject and to suffer. That was God's plan. Jesus gives us those six sufferings that he would suffer. These are not exhaustive, but this is what the book of Luke gives us. The first is that he is going to be delivered to the Gentiles. How many of you would like to be handed over to uh, your enemies? How do you think they would treat you? How do you think, do you think they would respect your laws and customs and traditions and all these types of things? No. Matthew's account of these verses um, say that Jesus will be handed over or betrayed into the chief, to, to the chief priests first and the teachers of the law, and, and that would be by Judas, and then they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. That's kind of the process here. So Matthew gives a little bit more. Jesus says in this, this, this account that he's just going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Well, it's going to be handed over to the chief priests first and the teachers of the law, betrayed by Judas the Gentiles were those who were outside of God's camp. They were the furthest from God in that they were idolaters, they were lawless, they had no reverence for the one true God. And Jesus, the Son of Man, would be placed into their hands. And so he knew exactly how things were going to be going down, that he would be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. That word delivered means betrayed. It can be translated betrayed. And we read in the New Testament account that Jesus was betrayed by the one closest to him. Have you inter- ever been betrayed by one who's close to you? You know, quite often we, we think of the physical sufferings of Christ, the things he physically endured, but how many of us know that one of the greatest hardships we could ever face is those that are interrelational? And Judas was by his side the whole time, hand-picked, hours spent, time invested, life poured out, and yet Jesus is betrayed by Judas with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common or a, actually a low-level slave that some commentators say. And it was at this point when Judas betrays Jesus that he is handed over by the Jews to the Gentiles, which are the Romans, 
for his execution. And the reason the Jews handed Jesus over to the Romans was because uh, as subjects of Rome, the Jews had lost the authority to enforce uh, the death penalty. They weren't allowed to do that, although they tried to stone people left and right, as we read. But only Rome could execute someone, and so they had to play politics. They went through the political system. They handed Jesus over to the Romans to be executed, and Jesus prophesied this. He knew what would happen. He knew what was going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be given to the Jews. The Jews are going to hand me over to the Romans. And he lays out what's exactly going on. And the next thing, actually, numbers two, the number two, three, and four, if you're taking notes of the sufferings of Christ here in Luke 18, in verse 32, Jesus says that when he was handed over, he would be mocked insulted and spit upon. How many of you have been mocked, insulted, and spit upon? Again, Jesus said this was according to the prophets. And as we read Isaiah 50, verses 7 through 5, this is penned by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus is is saying this, 700 years before uh, Jesus suffered and died. Beginning in verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 50, it says, The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Wow. 700 years before Jesus is reading the scriptures concerning his own life, the suffering that he would have. And as he reads it, he knows this is speaking of him. This is what he's going into door. This is what's going to happen to him. Jesus knew that the Messiah would be mocked, beaten, spat upon because Isaiah prophesied it. Can you imagine knowing your purpose was to die in this banner? You know, we talked in generalities, but how that was going to come about. What an incredible weight to, bear, to, bury the, the, uh, to bear that burden. And just as I, Isaiah predicted it, it happened. Before the Jewish leaders, we read how this happens in Matthew 26, 67 through 68. It says, Then they spit in his face, And they struck him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? They'd covered his head. They struck him with their, they'd spit in his face, covered his head, struck him with their fists. And others slapped him. They said, Prophesy to us, who hit you? Can you imagine the hostility that is going on there? Who would do that? There was a great animosity, a hatred in the hearts of God's people towards their own Savior. In Luke, we'll read about this sometime next year, (laughs) but in chapter 23, (laughs) where it says, in verse 11, it says, Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. So there's this back and forth going on. Matthew's account gives us greater details as to what happens. In verse 27, it says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. And they stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. 
They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff and they struck on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him away to be crucified. So there's just this public humiliation. It didn't even stop there. And one of the criminals, actually both of the criminals, but one of the criminals who was crucified with Jesus hurled insults, it says in chapter 29, uh, 23, verse 39 of Luke saying, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Come on now, save us. Get yourself down off that tree and, and save us if you're the Messiah. Could you imagine that? Having all authority, all power, creating the very people that are nailing you to a tree that you made with metal that you allowed them to ore and design. And here they are mocking you. And at one moment's notice, you could just erase everything that ever was about them or send them into the greatest pain and suffering. Imagine what restraint that Jesus had. Would you restrain yourself? I'd be like, boom. (laughs) Start with your pinky nail. I mean, it's just... You know, that's intense stuff that Jesus willfully hung there. Why? Because it was the Father's plan. And what did Jesus cry out as he was on the cross? What did he say to all, about all those people who were doing that to him? What did he say? Father, what? Forgive them. What kind of heart is that? What's the heartbeat of the gospel? What does God desire? The mankind would what? Be forgiven. Be reconciled. He withholds his wrath. He withholds his righteous judgment so that none would perish, but all would come to repentance, the scriptures say. That's his desire. Powerful picture there of Christ and his suffering, and even in his suffering, even at the hands of those people, he desires that those very people would come to repentance and know him. Wow. So just as was written about By the prophets, Jesus was mocked, insulted, and spat upon. Then fifthly and sixthly, it says that Jesus, uh, Jesus says in verse 33 of our text today in Luke, they will flog him and kill him. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to laugh. There's a giant spider crawling across my podium. See him? (laughs) Good thing, my boy. It's okay, little guy. 
And then fifthly and sixthly, Jesus says in verse 33 in our text today, they will flog him and kill him. We just read in Isaiah 50 that the Messiah would offer his back to those who beat him. John 19.1, Mark 14.65, and Matthew 27.26 all speak of Jesus being flogged. And many of you know about this. Flogging took place right before the soldiers dressed him in a royal robe, gave him the crown of thorns, pulled out his beard, covered his head, and beat him and all over and over. All that stuff, this was going on. Flogging wasn't just whipping, as you know. The Romans used something similar to a cat of nine tails, basically a short whip with around three or more strands of leather coming off of it, not very long. And on those strands were lead or, or bone or some types of metal that were designed to uh, latch into the skin and rip it when you pull it or to lacerate. And some say Jesus, you know, received as many as 39 stripes. It doesn't say. Paul says we get that from Paul's writings when he was beaten in a synagogue. But 30 was the standard. And the idea was that they were going to be punished and uh, it was going to be severe, just short of death. And so Isaiah prophesied in chapter 50 that he would offer his back to them that beat him. We think that Jesus was subject to these things. In other words, he unwillingly went. It was prophesied. He knew what was coming and he willfully walked. He wasn't being dragged. He willfully took on the shame and the suffering. He knew the cross was the plan from the beginning, from the foundations of the world. And that's the sixth thing, the cross, where Isaiah tells us 700 years before the crucifixion of the manner in which the Messiah would die. Before crucifixion was even invented, it's prophesied. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings, And yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions or wounded. And that idea with wounded is to be run through, uh, to be pierced. that's, That's the correct translation, to be pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are what? Healed. Why would Christ endure such hostility? That we might be, what? Healed. We're not talking about a bodily healing. We're talking about healed of our sin before God. Eternally healed. The cross was the instrument that God foreordained to execute his justice to reconcile mankind to himself through his son. Jesus became cursed for us, as it says in Deuteronomy 21, cursed is the one who hangs upon a tree. Jesus knew this was his destiny. It was the cross, as Isaiah 53 says, therefore I have set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. I'm going towards the cross. And Luke 9, 51 says, at that time he approached for him to be taken to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out 
for Jerusalem. One of my favorite verses, Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne. Why did Christ endure the suffering for the will of God, for the joy set before him, which I believe is the joy of obeying his Father, of his Father's will to come about. And what was the Father's joy? Let me ask more personal, who is the Father's joy? That's you. For God so loved, put your name in the blank, that he gave his only son And Jesus wasn't unwilling. He walked into it, eyes wide open, offered his back for you. It's personal. Think of your sin this week. Think of the things that are weighing you down, church. I know it's there. Jesus took it all. Not some, all. When that relationship was broken, when he was on the cross and the face-to-face relationship that he enjoyed with the Father from out all eternity was severed because he became sin for us and the wrath of God was poured out upon him for those who would believe, for you, for me. When that relationship was broken, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we would never be forsaken? I will never leave you, Jesus said, and I will never what? Because he has been what? Forgiven, uh, forsaken for us. Oh, what manner of love is this? We've been reconciled to God, so take your heavy burdens, church, Put your faith in Christ who laid himself out for it and took the full punishment and penalty and the scorn and the shame that was in your place and cry out to God and say, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Amen? Pierced for our transgressions. For the joy set before him, he endured. Jesus willfully heads towards the cross, the very reason that he'd been sent to the world, our forgiveness for you and for me. He even said to Nicodemus, and I already quoted it, but just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus was lifted up on the cross so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I've shared it before. The Israelites were grumbling, complaining. God sent serpents into their camp. They all got bit and they were dying. And it's a picture of sin. We've all been bit, we're gonna die. And so the remedy as they cried out for mercy, he said, go take, make a bronze snake, put it on a pole and lift it up and tell the people of Israel that everybody who looks upon that will be healed, will be saved. And you're going, okay, so Moses does this weird thing. He puts a pole up and that's where we get the medical sign, right? And they look at that and they're healed. The picture is Christ 
was the snake. He became sin for us, and we look to him, and we, by his stripes, by what took, was taken upon him, we are healed. And Jesus said, the Son of Man must be lifted up. I must do this for you. <laughs> and Jesus was lifted up. The Lamb of God, slain before the foundations of the earth. So the cross, his death, was a sick suffering that he predicts here in Luke 18. But if you're looking at our text, you know I can't end with six. There has to be what? There has to be seven, always, yeah. What does it mean? It's just that's what it is. There's seven things there. Six sufferings and one triumph. What is the triumph? What does it say? It says that on the third day he would what? Rise again. So yes, he would be handed over to the Gentiles, mocked, insulted, spat upon, flogged, and killed. But on the seventh day, he would rise again. And the Old Testament is full of prophecies concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. And, and some are, are very visible. You can just see them. They're tangible. And some of them are, are hidden. Some of the amazing ones that I come across, like when we last studied Genesis a few years back, um, remember that story of the baker and the, uh, and the bread, uh, the, the baker and the cupbearer. And, and here Joseph is in prison. You've got this baker and this cupbearer. And they have a dream. Well, one of them was going to, you know, they had baskets and all this weird stuff. But anyways, the interpretation of the dream is that one of them would die in three, in three days and one of them would be restored to their position in three days. And so you've got a picture of the bread. You've got a picture of the cup. You've got three days in the grave. You know, three days someone's going to die, but the, the second one was the guy would be restored to his position of authority in the palace in three days. Just like... There's this stuff all throughout. You just cannot make this stuff up. It is weaved all throughout the Old Testament. Those are the hidden ones. They're the gems you, you kind of mine out. But there's obvious ones as well. Well, this one's even a little bit, a little bit hidden. One of the oldest prophecies concerning the resurrection of the Messiah is in Genesis 3. Just after the fall of man, God addresses the serpent that is Satan, where in Genesis chapter 3, 15, God says, and I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and hers. All who, are, um, who reject Christ are of Satan's offspring. But he says, in between your seed and hers, speaking of the Messiah, her seed would be, the Messiah would come through her. It says that he, you, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And it's just this little subtle uh, little thing in there. And you're like, what is that about? Why, why are you putting that in there? You see, the serpent would strike the Messiah, but the Messiah would crush his head. The Messiah would die, but he would raise again and crush Satan. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. And there are several others like that. Isaiah 53, 10 through 11, Psalm 22, all of it, which is great, Messianic, and others. And so God's divine plan all along was for the Messiah to go to the Jerusalem and die upon the cross to save all who would believe. And all of it, who cares if Jesus died and was in the ground? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't, doesn't matter because he's just like the rest of us. We die because of sin. We go in the ground. We have no power over death. But see, the scriptures declare that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus said, I will raise myself up. And and it also says that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Three days later, God 
raised Christ from the dead three days later, having the power over what we do not have power over because of sin. Jesus is our victory. And through faith in him, we too have power over death. Though these bodies die, we will be resurrected. That is the hope. That is the promise. Not Matt 1.0 that's fallen apart. Amen. Can I hear an amen, everybody? Don't put your hope in this one. That one. The one you got. It's fading. It's perishing. Some of us, we will not all perish, but in a moment, in a twinkling of eye, you'll be changed. I mean, I want to have that happen. But we will be like Christ one day, having that resurrected body. And we'll be as he is. The promise of eternal life. A body that matches the spirit. How many of you would like to have that? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? One of the penalties they had for um, convicts back in Rome is, is if you murdered someone or you did something bad, they would tie the body to you and you just had to live with it. And Paul's saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? I keep dragging around myself. Who's going to free me from myself? Thanks be to Jesus Christ. And then you get into chapter 8, which is life by the Spirit. God gives us the Spirit, the new life, the life by faith, where we reckon the old man dead. That's where the victorious Christian living happens. But that old prophecy that the serpent would strike, but Jesus would crush his head. Jesus would rise. And and there's those other ones. And so God's divine plan all along was for the Messiah to go to Jerusalem and to die upon the cross to save all who believe. And this is the third time in Luke's gospel that Jesus directly and urgently tells his disciples about what's coming as they are approaching Jerusalem. And sadly, in verse 34, it says, and the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> all that time with Jesus, all that training, all that Bible study, all the miracles, all the disciples did not have a clue. Anyone relate? <laughs> I think there's things we read about the future that are going on, we're like, I don't have a clue. You know, the Bible talks about it, and we're just like, meh, I have no idea what's going on there. And I think the Lord is merciful in spite of it. And and Jesus was, as he was experienced this suffering and this trial, the disciples, they just scattered with the exception maybe of John and Peter tried to hang around, but even he left. Everybody left Jesus. They went away. They abandoned him. And it wasn't until Jesus rose again from the grave, he had to go get them. Amen? He had to go get them. And it was at that point, which we read in Luke 24, again, we'll get there in two years, where Jesus says to them, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all, who, all that the prophets have spoke. So this is Jesus. Like he resurrects, it's still the same Jesus. He gives them a hard time. You know, they still don't get it. And he says, did, the Messiah, have, uh, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then, and then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. I have questions like, God, why don't you tell them that Bible study before? Maybe he did. He kept trying to tell them, right? They didn't hear it. And so 
Although Jesus tells his disciples God's plan, they don't get it until after the resurrection. But brothers and sisters, we have the privilege and the honor of looking back and seeing the full account. We can get it. And how many of you have got it? And you've been illuminated. And when you open scriptures, it's not this boring book anymore, but you see Jesus on every page. The Old Testament you're reading through that and go, what is this? Oh, this is boring. And then all of a sudden you throw Jesus in the middle and you start seeing, whoa, it's about him. This is his story. And it's amazing and supernatural. And we rejoice now looking back on the sufferings of Christ on our behalf that we might have eternal life through faith in him. And so we don't have to worship in ignorance. We've been, we've been given revelation. As Ephesians says, we've been given the mystery of his will. You've been, the prophecy's been explained. The thing that was in God's mind from all eternity has been revealed to those who believe. And now here we are and we hear and we see and we, can, we get it. We're his. We're his kids. We speak his language. And so as we close the service, if we could have someone go get the kids, um, someone will volunteer to go get the kids. Thanks, John. <clears throat> well, probably not John. I need you to play drums. <laughs> Doug, would you do it? Thanks. Other John will do it. As we... Uh, Approach communion. Think. And I don't want you to think of your sin, you know, but just those of you who are, are weighed down and heavy by the things that have gone on in your attitude, your life, or perhaps the sufferings, that have, the, the, the hardships that have been placed upon you. People have treated you poorly. The cross is a beautiful place. It is a horrible place, but it is a beautiful place for the Christian. And that we can cast our cares upon them. There's a song we used to sing, the wrongs we have done and the wrongs done to us were nailed there with you, there at the cross. The wrongs done, we've done and the wrongs done to us were nailed there at the cross. It's a place where we can leave all of it knowing that God took it fully. It's a place where we can forgive because we have been forgiven of so much. Amen? So church, enjoy the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. The, the, the body and the blood, not, these, are, these are representations of those things. The cup was the shedding of his blood. It pictures that for us, that as we take the cup, remember that he, his blood was shed to take away our sins. As we take the, the, the bread, remember that it was his, he was pierced for our transgressions. His body was broken that you might be healed. He was pierced, amen? And that's not a might be, you are. It's done from the foundations of the earth. I don't get that one, Ephesians 1. And so enjoy him. And I would encourage you, if there are relationships that need to be mended with, with one another, this is a time to reconcile those things. The cross reconciles. Amen? So we're going to spend some time 
together just worshiping the Lord in the last few minutes we have. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the blood that was shed and the joy, Lord, that we now have in you. We thank you that it wasn't that you were skimping and, and, and whining and trying to dragging yourself to the cross and, okay, I guess I'll do it. You willfully, joyfully embraced it for us. Thank you that this is your will, Father. And we ask, Lord, that you'd be honored. In the name of Jesus, amen.